Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Phil Hay Show. Hello there. Welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and from The Athletic, here's Phil Hay. Hello. And The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And you can get in touch with the show now via the Twitter account, new Twitter account, at The Phil Hay Show. And you can subscribe right now to The Athletic for that special price, $3.99 a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. You get everything that Phil's written about, not much coming up over the coming few weeks, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but if you want to sign up for that, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for the 40% discount, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. You also get these podcasts ad free. And if you like them, please leave us a review. So Phil, your big announcement then, a bit of time off coming up. Yeah, probably two or three months in the garden for me and nicely timed to coincide with the transfer window as well. So enjoy that, everybody. And um, and find find people to hassle because journalists love being hassled about transfers. Definitely something to, to get onto them about. But yes, I'm, I I think at this stage, I will probably have finished um, about surgery on a brain tumour, which will hopefully be out and sorted and I'll be healing up somewhere in the LGI and hopefully very high on morphine as well because they tell me that's, um, that's pretty good. But I am going to be bailing out for a little while, so it will probably be July, August time before I'm back on the athletic site. And obviously, I'll be away from the podcast as well. But you two tell me you've got great plans for this. So in safe hands. Yeah, the Phil Hay show without a Phil Hay. It's a bit of a problem, isn't it? But it's a problem we've we've attacked with gusto. We're going to have some some guests on over the coming weeks. Starting next week with Tony Dorigo is going to be filling your shoes, Phil, which will be... um, It'll be great fun. We've also pre-recorded some bits because we knew this was coming. So in the recent weeks, we've recorded a top 10 signings since you've been covering Leeds United, which we're going to play one out every week over the next 10 weeks or thereabouts. And do get in touch with Phil on Twitter even when he's off to tell him how much you disagree with him as well. Absolutely. Imagine the fight that's going to break out over this. It's absolutely tremendous. I'll, I'll be watching from a distance as you two sort of marshal the troops. And those famous three words, which I am going to text you every morning. From the minute you get out of recovery, I am going to be sending you the words, any news, Phil, relentlessly via text. So, uh, yeah, do come back soon and, and get well soon. We, we don't want to miss yeah, you for I'm too done. long. 
I'm just going to reply saying things like morphine, codeine, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Um, actually, you, our good friend Moscow White was in, in touch this morning and he was saying that he'd, he'd keep an eye on the podcast and make sure it's all right. But I, I suggested to him that we start a collection box for you every time you mention Mr. DePaul. In fact, I, I was saying to him, maybe, maybe you should be forced to remove a tooth with pliers every time you mention his name. <laughs> Pop it in a box. <laughs> right then, should we talk about some football then? Yeah, let's. Uh, good one at the weekend. Leeds nil, Man United nil. You won to watch last week was the midfield, I believe it was. What do you think about the midfield? Yeah, it was the centre of midfield because that had been the problem area for Leeds uh, over at Old Trafford, certainly in the, the early part of the game. And, and it was because of a bit of imbalance there and, and a bit of weakness that they found themselves 2-0 down, 3-0 down, 4-0 down before the, the game had really got going over in Manchester. And, and they also said after that, he was pretty defensive of his tactics and he was defensive of things like the set-piece record and, and the style of play and, and the way they'd approached um, the second half at 4-1 down. But he did admit that McTominay and Fred had, had, had far more of an impact on his midfield than he expected. I think they were more aggressive and, and more attacking than he anticipated. And because of that and because of Fernandez being quite clever in the way that, that he was able to drag Phillips into certain areas of the pitch where he, where he couldn't protect the back four, it, it caused an issue and, and it was a, a big reason why why Manchester United were able to to take three points out of that game. It was very different on Sunday and I think it's part of a bigger picture where we're seeing adaptation from Leeds and, and we're seeing them start to regulate and moderate the performances, particularly against the biggest clubs. We, we saw it against Chelsea, I felt, and, and again away at Manchester City. I know after half time, it was obviously back to the wall and and the Alamo once Liam Cooper was sent off. But even before that, it wasn't as open and, and as, I guess as, as loose and free as it had been against Manchester City at Ellen Road. And again on Sunday um, against Man United, you just felt that Leeds were more inclined to, to sit a little deeper, to be less reckless with the tactics, more inclined to keep things tight. Phillips did a, an outstanding job on Fernandes from start to finish. There are very few points at which Fernandes was able to get into space in the pocket and, and look to, to pick passes and, and take advantage of the pace that was in front of him. But the midfield in the main were really, really disciplined, um, kept it really tight. And I do think we're seeing a bit of an evolution with Bielsa's tactics and, and his style. And he said afterwards that he thinks the players are growing into this. You know, he, he thinks they're starting to understand these games better. He thinks that they're starting to they're starting to learn how to manage them and, and how to cope against better players. And the, there were a lot of accusations of naivety after the game over at Old Trafford. But you certainly couldn't have said that on Sunday. And I thought one of the things that was really telling was that when Pogba came off the bench in the second half, Bielsa's decision was to take off Robertson to put on Robin Koch. So essentially a, a centre-back for, for an attacking midfielder or a, or a forward. And it did seem to me that at that point, with about 12, 13 minutes to go, he'd realised that a draw was probably as much as Leeds were, were going to get from the game. And that what the, you know the, there just wasn't a lot of point in going for broke um, late on. And if you think back to his first season... Leeds always, always played right up until, you know, third minute of injury time, fourth minute of injury time. I can remember games at Ellen Road where they were 1-0 up and they're still attacking, looking for a, a second goal, even though the, the whistle's about to sound. It hasn't changed completely and it's not as if that's gone from them. And, and fundamentally, the tactics are still much the same. But I do think that everybody, including Bielsa, they're all starting to adapt. It feels like we've seen a bit of a pivot this week from his, his critics saying that he's naive. So that he's abandoned his principles and that he's... What's he doing here? This is not what we expect from him. 
Well, that was inevitable, wasn't it? I was listening, I was watching from home because I've been shielding before this operation and I was listening to Jamie Carragher on Sky towards the end and he was saying, you know, this has been an awful game. You know, there's been, it's been very low on quality. There hasn't been much to, to entertain anybody. And he wasn't entirely wrong. It, it was no great spectacle. There weren't a huge number of chances. It was nothing like the game that the two clubs had had um, over at Old Trafford. But I think with Leeds, it's always quite interesting when you scratch below the surface and, and look at what's happening with them tactically. And we've, we've said many times that one of the things Bielsa has done is made you think far more about football in a tactical sense rather than just shots on goal or, or um, the scoreline itself. And, and I did think it was very interesting to see the way that they are changing and, and the way that the the way that the structure is is I guess changing because it has to in these games. You know, we we said after the beating in Manchester that. It was almost amazing, actually, the way in which people tolerated that. And, and the reason that they did in Leeds was because we've had two great seasons, now a third great season under Bielsa. And he had so much credit in the bank that people were prepared to accept that and were prepared to accept that you know his tactics might lead to that sort of result. But we also said that it can't be like that forever. And that is the sort of scoreline that will grate on you further down the line because you want to see a team improve. You want to see them start to manage those games slightly better. You know, he, he said afterwards that his players are learning, but I wonder if he is too, because it's his first season in the Premier League and, and he is an elite coach. He is a, a genius when it, it comes to coaching. But even he will go through learning curves and it does feel as if the way that Leeds were going at Chelsea and Man City and, and Liverpool and Manchester United in the first half of the season is different to the way they're approaching these games in the second half of the season. And I have to say that's a really good thing. And it, it doesn't, there's no logic in criticising Bielsa for the absence of a plan B only to start moaning um, when one seems to, to be appearing or at least if plan A seems to be changing slightly. It cannot be all things to, to all men and, and they can't look to him for a knife fight every time Leeds play. I had a great conversation with my mate Wayne um, via text and we we speak about Bielsa in almost reverential terms. We're like religious fanatics when it comes to discussing him. And I kind of feel that we're seeing a genius refine his art. It's funny you should say what you said then about him learning because I do feel it's a bit like that where, you know, with the way that he works, it's all about acquiring data, isn't it? And, and getting better all, all the time. And as Wayne put it to me, he said he's running the numbers and decoding the entire league, which I really, really like that as an idea. And it's almost like we could get better yet next season. I think that's true. Also, bear in mind that he's coming up to the end of season three and hopefully about to go into season four. And he has never managed anywhere for this length of time. So even though there is this impression of him, and you know he, he perpetuates it himself, he, he says this, but impression of him as a coach who will never bend from his tactics... You could say that in a lot of jobs, he's never been in them for long enough for his tactics to have time to bend. You don't generally jump from month to month switching everything about. It, it does tend to be a bit of an evolution and, and a bit of a process over an extended period of time. And he's not hes not a daft. If, if I go back to the game at Old Trafford, you'll remember the press conference he gave a couple of days later, but he, he spoke for about 45 minutes about the criticism that he'd had. And he thought about it a lot and, and it clearly been been eaten away at him a little bit. And somebody said to him in that press conference, they, they misquoted Sean Dyche as saying, it's essentially that, that Bielsa was more interested in performances than results. You know, Bielsa was happy to lose games if his team were playing nice football. And, and actually, what Dyche said was, it would be peculiar to look at football in those terms, you know, to think that performances are fine if you're not winning games. 
But he qualified that by saying, I don't think that's what Bielsa does. You know, I don't think Bielsa thinks like that at all. But because he was misquoted in, in the press conference, Bielsa got a bit frustrated about that and said, you know, this is a, a stick that people use to beat me with. I have never, ever said that I want the team to play well and I don't care what the results are. You know, the results do matter to me. And I think there was a, a point in that which we're maybe starting to see now, which is that he will want his team to play good football and he will want his team to be entertaining. But he won't want to get trounced down at Arsenal every time they go there. And he won't want to get hammered at, at um, Old Trafford whenever Leeds visit. And likewise, Chelsea and, and Manchester City, he, he will want to actually compete in these games. And I think we've spoken in the past about the fact that from time to time, a little bit of adaptability or, or versatility on Bielsa's part would not be a bad thing. And I think we're seeing it. And I totally agree with you. I think it's one of several reasons why I think Leeds can improve next season, or if not improve, why they can be as competitive as they've been this time. Going back to the Jamie Carragher comments, as a non-Leeds fan, albeit one that's invested in the team, were you bored or did you think it was quite engaging in its own way? He's a Leeds fan. It, yeah, it's, it's difficult for me to, to look at it through neutralised because obviously I'm covering it and, and writing about it. You're and, one and of us. Vested, vested interest in the result. I didn't find it boring particularly. I, I, I suppose we, we've been treated to so much good football over the the space of three years, that it's not actually that hard to put up with the odd game that isn't that entertaining. I think the thing that kills you as a supporter or as a spectator is the kind of creeping death of awful football or mundane football that's just there week after week and, and doesn't bring anything out of you. When you have a game like this, it's quite easy because of the way Bielsa thinks and because of how hard he works on, on the team and, and on the tactics. It's quite easy to just adjust your, your view and to look through the lens of what are they doing and how are they doing it? And, and I guess, ultimately, why are they doing it? You know, why is it, why has it changed like this? The reason is because they've conceded a lot of goals in, in some of these games. You know, four at Arsenal, six at Manchester United, three down at Spurs. And he won't want that to, to continue. You know, there's, there's nothing, nothing good about that, even if people enjoy the way you play. So I don't think it was dull, but I think from Carragher's point of view, I can kind of understand why there wasn't a lot to write home about from that. I don't know if I'm getting giddy or not, but I fancy us to win the league inside three years. <laughs> that is a hell of a claim. I'd suggest you might be getting slightly giddy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like going into these games knowing we can get points from though, it is the sort of thing that can push you from being te- ninth, 10th into 5th, 6th. If you, if you don't have to start a season thinking, well, our style of play means we definitely are not getting anything from Man United, Man City. Yeah, we said they were all free hits, didn't we, going into these games. But I'll tell you, we said earlier in the week, didn't we, that this didn't feel like a free hit game anymore. It felt like a game where we could go into and compete. And I think we did. We did really well. And the same goes for, for Liverpool and Man City. We've we've evolved a lot. But let's not forget as well to credit the players, because in terms of simply personnel, we've got players back from injury. The squad is now looking stronger because, to go back to the example you said there, Phil, uh, being able to bring on a German international to mark Pogba from the bench rather than, let's say, a child, it's levelling up, isn't it? Yeah, and you, you are seeing a, a big improvement in the defensive record, which again is something that, that Bielsa has been badgered about right the way through this season. But you saw with his team in the Championship last season, albeit against your weaker opposition, that he can construct a really good defence and that within a framework that is basically you know predicated on on aggressive attacking football, they can, they can be very, very tight at the back. It has to be helped by the fact that you have somebody like Urente who's now properly up to speed and, and looking fully match fit. Stroik just looks more and more impressive. And I think if if you were starting to wonder at any point if there was a longer-term successor to Liam Cooper on the left side of defence, he's starting to look like he absolutely could be 
at this level. And and you're right about Koch as well. He, he does play from time to time there for Germany. It was one of the reasons why they signed him because they thought he, he could be, you know, a little bit adaptable in, in the sense that he should play at centre-back, but he could step out and play defensive midfield if, if they needed him to do that. And he just plugged the gaps. It was clever, really. He stopped Pogba getting into the areas where, where he would potentially hurt Leeds. And, and it did rather tie up the last 12 minutes of the game. So it's not. I don't think it's a coincidence that any of this is happening. And, and I think, you, again, you can just see players getting a little bit better and, and starting to understand the league more. And in terms of free, free hits, I do think it helps in these games that Bielsa would never see them as free hits. And I don't think the players would either. Um, I think they've been so good this season. And it's such a novelty being up against Liverpool, Man City, whoever else, that they actually want to play well in these games. You know, there's no attitude of, of going there and thinking, well, it doesn't really matter this and, and we'll we'll take what we can get because the chances are we'll we'll get beaten. They they really do seem to have the the bit between their teeth. And and they're so far clear of relegation now, it's it's almost almost laughable. At the start of the season, you wondered if April would be a critical month because of the three games that have just gone. But in actual fact, it's been more relaxed than than I think any of us could have imagined. You mentioned the defensive midfield there. Where do you rank that in Calvin Phillips' best Leeds games? I still feel his best this season was Everton away. His, his passing stats in that were absolutely extraordinary. And, and I think the difference that made was that not only were Leeds pretty neat and tidy defensively, but they were they were very, very dangerous going forward because he was picking all sorts of passes. His, his range was, was great. And... Everton were really struggling to to live with them, and not just in Leeds half. You know, in Everton's half as well, his, his pass percentage completion rate was was extremely high. I think on Sunday it was a really good defensive performance, and he was very very strong against Fernandez and, and didn't give him much of an inch. It was hard for him or anybody else, I felt, to make much of an impact going forward because it seemed to me that that none of the the front five had an especially great game. I thought Dallas played well in, in a defensive sense. But it wasn't easy for Costa or Harrison or Bamford or Roberts to to make any great impact. I don't think they helped themselves because I don't think many of them played particularly well. But there were occasions where the ball was coming out to Bielsa's defence or to Phillips and there didn't seem to be much in the way of great options in front of them. I, I do think they missed Rafinha and, and in an attacking sense, they were just lacking the, the usual verve. But we've seen a lot of that and you know there hasn't been a shortage of it this season. And I think what what we've all wanted to to reach with Bielsa is the middle ground where when you have a day where the attacking end of your team isn't working, you don't concede three at the other end and, and lose 3-0. You know, I, I thought in that sense, the balance was right at the weekend. And it gives great excitement looking forward to the transfer market in the summer um, where maybe we can accentuate those attacking areas, maybe in the central attacking midfield area. If there's anybody Italian-based, maybe an Argentinian international that could slot into that role and maybe offer more threat carrying the ball going forward I look forward to that pull his teeth out Michael get in there <laughs> Go I, I, am, I am actually going to have to let Moscow loose on you with these players yeah <laughs> I, will, I will do I will do I'm, you see I'm going to watch um, DePaul with great fascination like everybody else I, I can't help feeling that he is he is going to move somewhere this summer I just I, I'm, I'm watching some of the highlights of his assists and goals and so on in Italy and it just seems as if this time at Udinese must be at an end, but still no suggestion that it's going to be that it's going to be Leeds. Um, but you live in hope, don't you? You do. Um, joking aside, he looks a bit like Jack Grealish does with Villa in that he appears to be carrying the vast majority of that team's attacking threat because Villa haven't looked like the same side since he's been out of it. And you see echoes of that in um, in DePaul, but maybe with slightly less falling over, but more aggression because he's been sent off recently. 
No, Villa are not in great form. And actually, somebody was um, pointing out their record minus Grealish um, the other day, which is is absolutely awful. And again, they invested in a similar way to Leeds over the summer. And I think we'd probably all agree that their window generally was pretty good. You know, I, I think Ollie Watkins, decent signing, brought in Ross Barkley. Martinez from Arsenal has probably been as, as good as most keepers in the Premier League this season. But they've had a year in the Premier League. This is their second year. And, and as it stands at the moment, albeit game in hand, they have. Leeds are outperforming them um, and, and have outperformed them in, in the second half of this season too. So it's just little feathers in the cap. I think as you, you top further down the table and you've got Wolves who really are struggling under Nuno. Southampton who just seem like they've been drifting for ages now. Um, there's a real vibrancy about Leeds and really a real freshness to the team. And, and I think that is why, again, this window is so crucial because it's about accentuating that without you know, going to the lengths in terms of expenditure that they did in, in the summer window before this season started. They, they just need to keep getting better. Um, and I don't think this window will be a you know an outright spectacular one. But again, if, if they get it right, they'll be better for it. That's right. You leave us with a miserable note about the transfer window. You're supposed to be filling us with optimism here, Phil. I'm just, mind you, I'm looking at the table and you see Villa. Uh, I know they've got a game in hand on us yet, but they are two points off us with, what, a handful of games to play in the season. We've got five to go. They've got They've got six. I saw them as a bit of a benchmark to pass this season. I always thought it'd be quite satisfying to to finish above them because, you know, they stayed up by a hair's breadth last season and they've spent, what, 200, 250 million quid to be two points worse off than us this season so far, which is great testament to the work that Leeds have done. Yeah, I think if you look at Wills, um, Southampton, for example, they've had what they consider to be poor seasons and that the, the definite bit of spark that was there has has gone out. I don't think it feels the same with Villa. You know, I, th- I think Wolves and Southampton are, are, are in the sort of state where you would you would fancy Leeds to finish above them because Leeds are playing so well. Villa have had good spells, you know, Villa have been, been competitive. I, I think you're right. If you're finishing above them, it is a, a very, very good benchmark. I mean, finishing above Arsenal feels significant to me in a way, although the the complexity there is that I don't really know what Arsenal are at the moment and I don't know how good they should be or how good they could be, whether it's Arteta's fault, whether the squad is substandard, whether it goes right to the top there. They are just a weird club um, at the moment. But when it comes to um, Villa, I totally agree with you. Absolutely. I don't think Arsenal know what they are either and that's part of their problem, but it's certainly good for Leeds. Um, The more sides that uh, don't know what they're doing, I think is better uh, for us, we are joined by Norwich and Watfords, which should save, what, £4 million per club in um, in parachute payments over the next couple of years, something like that? Well, we'll see about that. Um, there's the, the odd scenario this season that the, the three teams who get promoted might be the three teams who, who got relegated last season, which has only only ever happened once in, in, in 20-odd years or something like that. It, it, it hasn't generally been the case that getting relegated with parachute payments gives you a, a massive chance of coming back up immediately. From what I've been reading um, and from what I've been hearing, I think the championship are very keen to hang on to the parachute payments. And I think they're, they're very anxious that the money that would have been dropping down into that league, albeit to you know individual clubs, isn't lost completely. Uh, something tells me that the Premier League would probably rather rather cling on to it. But yeah, Norwich and, and Watford both coming back up. Um, I think with Norwich in particular, be interested to see how competitive they are, given that they you know, it was it was hard work for them um, the season after they were promoted Bielsa's, at the end of Bielsa's first season. They, they didn't get going. They didn't get their teeth into the Premier League. And, and I think they 
I wouldn't say made the mistake of sticking to their style because obviously it's worked for Bielsa, but I don't think they were able to do anything at the point at which it was clear that the style that, that Farke was sticking to wasn't going to work. As for Watford, I, I suspect they'll come up and be half decent, actually. I don't think they'll they'll cruise into to mid-table, but given their ownership and their links to various clubs, not, not least Udinese, I think they'll have a way of, of getting a decent squad together. Do you think they'll ship in anybody from Udinese? Because that would break my heart, quite frankly. If they, I was going to say, I, I can't imagine your devastation if at the end of all this is destination Vicarage Road. <laughs> what, what an anticlimax that would be. Um, <laughs> in terms of the playoffs, they have been confirmed and we batted this one around on the Square Ball podcast, actually. Brentford, Bournemouth, Swansea and Barnsley, the four that are vying for that final spot. Um, we all went for Barnsley um, on the Square Ball podcast. A, because it'd be a bit of fun. B, because they're not really seen as a threat and they'd likely struggle. Um, what about you? Who do you fancy? I fancy Bournemouth, I think, which is a surprise because they took a little bit of time to to get going again when when they appointed Woodgate as as coach. And I did think to myself that having the club I mean talked about wanting a coach with experience of promotion and essentially somebody with, with really good championship stock, it seemed like a complete about turn to, to go for Woodgate. And you almost felt as if they might be selling their season, or at least this season, down the river a little. But they have a really good squad and they've got a lot of good players and it's, it's properly clicked. I still think that pound for pound, if, if all four teams play as well as they can, it will be Brentford um, who go up. But I'm with you. I, I hope it is Barnsley. It's a, it's a good away day. They've got Alex Mowat down there, who I, I was I was always keen on in, in the academy. Really good player coming through, um, and it would be it would be a bit of a surprise. But as we've said before, it's actually been great not to see very much of it and to have very little idea about it because it feels like half of my life has been spent watching the championship playoffs. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You spoke to Mark Jackson about the under-23s this week and they have won their league and will be promoted to Premier League One. So how was that then? And what's the feeling inside the camp? I was very impressed by him. And I don't want that to sound as a surpri- sound like I'm surprised. I don't want people to think that I didn't expect to be impressed by him. But he doesn't have a huge profile, um, Jackson, and, and he's never really tried to put himself out there. He's never tried to put himself in, in the spotlight. He said to me himself, you know, I, I don't do a lot of this, so I didn't really know what to expect with with the interview. But very intelligent, very well measured, I think got the, the sort of balanced personality that you really need to be a coach or a manager. And they have absolutely cruised that league. I mean, you have to remember that they, they, they were promoted by virtue of the fact that they moved up to um, Category 1 status, the academy under um, EPPP, and, and that automatically gains you entry into Premier League 2. 
but they've gone in with a better standard of opposition um, in the, the second tier. They've cruised it to the extent where they've been winning it for weeks now. I mean, it, it was only the, the Villa game um, 10 days ago or so that, that sealed it. But even at that stage, um, Stoke below them were needing four wins and a shift in goal difference of uh, about 20 goals and Leeds were needing to lose all three of the, the, the remaining games. It just was never, never going to happen. Um, and I, I think they've got a, a beautiful balance of talented players and, and players who've been there for a while, so know the drill and, and also know Jackson pretty well. And and then, of course, the crossover to training with the first team, so a proper understanding of the tactics that are, I, I think are, are genuinely filtering down now to the 23s. And people who watch the 18s a lot tell me you can see the man-for-man mark in there, you can see the high press, everything else. They're playing a, a brand of football which just isn't really there in the academy leagues or certainly hasn't been this season. And they've been almost impossible to live with. And I think part of that as well is the, the quality of the recruitment. They have signed some cracking academy players, Gelhard and Greenwood and Drami and, and Somerville and others. And they've just been a level above. And, and Jackson did say next season in you know Premier League Two's top division, that is going to be a big challenge because you're mixing with the Manchester clubs and you're mixing with Chelsea and um, Liverpool and, and everybody else. So the standard of, standard of opposition will increase. But I think a lot of these players will will be ready for it. And even though there hasn't been a massive flood from 23s to the first team this season, you know, Bielsa has, been, has not been frivolous with his, his use of the players. I, I do feel more and more like there's a group there with several players in it who could conceivably be Premier League players. Which of them do you fancy to make it? Um, them because it's funny because you were saying that I wrote down four names and they were the four that you mentioned Gelhart, Greenwood, Drammy and Somerville they've taken the headlines because they were brought in it's not that often you get Premier League sides where you've got that many genuine first team candidates knocking about in the 23s is it? If you were asking me to put my mortgage on it I would go for Gelhard. I spoke to Nick Chadwick who worked with him the ex-Everton striker who worked with him at, at Wigan and he spoke with, with Gilhard. He said they're just extraordinarily talented and a bit of a body shape similar to Rooney's, bit of a skill set similar to Rooney's as well. He said one of the issues with Gilhart was that you you were trying to teach him how to deal with difficult circumstances and to deal with adversity. And Chadwick said, you know, you kept thinking something's going to happen, you know, in in games or he's going to have a little down spell where he's not going to play particularly well and and he's going to have to work out how to get out of that and and how to how to turn it around. And he said it just never happened because Gilhart was always in form. You know, always in form and never really below par. So absolutely, he'd be the one I was putting money on. If I was having to um, gamble your mortgages, then um, I would be thinking about people like Drami. I would be thinking about somebody like Charlie Creswell, that centre-back who, who people speak about very, very highly. I think it comes back to the same thing with 23s. There are several there guys like um, Somerville, guys like Greenwood and Huggins and so on, who you genuinely think could do, um, but like everything with um, academy football, you can't say for sure. But I think, to my mind, Gelhard is the one that I really, really expect to progress. I know you're probably not bothered about the transfer window this summer, but do you expect them to do a bit of business that um, helps to accentuate the 23s a bit? Yeah, I think they will do. Um, there, there is a budget there. They, they do like to keep that ticking over. I think they've seen... Since the initial splurge on academy players that really didn't work, that, that first summer when Radrazani and Orta came in, there was a lot of foreign recruitment done. There were a lot of players who signed who didn't look like they were particularly improving the academy team and, and didn't look like they were a serious threat to the first team. I, I think since they've sharpened up the recruitment and 
made it a bit more focused and, and actually started to spend more on individual players, but, you know, to, to kind of limit what they're doing at the same time. They've seen how well it's worked and, and they've seen that players like Gelhard are, are well worth picking up at this point when you can get them for, you know, around about a million pounds as opposed to what he could potentially be worth further down the line. So, yeah, I think I think they will do. I don't think it'll all be under 23's level. I think you'll see recruitment further down through the age groups as well. But they, they do seem to have this concerted plan whereby there's a budget for the first team, but there's also a budget for the academy. Curious about Somerville, because reports suggested he wasn't really pulling up any trees at, at first. Then we found out he was, he was a bit injured. But this is a, a kid who's been playing in um, area division in um, in the Netherlands. So would you expect him to make more of an impact in the first team across the next 12 months or thereabouts? He had injuries as well. That that's not it, It's not been plain sailing for him um, entirely. I think that kind of touches on what I was saying, though. That That is almost the difference. A lot of the foreign deals that were done in the first window, they, they were very raw players and players with either no first team experience or if they had first team experience, it was at a level which made them difficult to judge. Um, with Somerville, you're right, he has played in Holland's top division and he was coming over with that at the point where he was he was joining the academy. So you knew that there was some pedigree there and, and there was some definite definite calibre. I mean, he made the bench um, on Sunday and so did um, Greenwood. Gilhard, I think, has a, a knock at the moment, so wasn't um, wasn't involved. So they're obviously very close and, you know, some of those goals and, and assists have been decent this season. Greenwood and Gelhard have, have pretty much been scoring for fun. Um, I think they're all doing as well as you could expect. But it was interesting, again, to, to hear Bielsa asked about this before the Man United game. You know, the, the idea of at what stage it might be sensible to you know play the kids, as, as everybody says. And he just said, again, people are getting the team on merit. You know, I'm not going to play them because they're young. Um, and I'm not going to play them because we're safe. And I'm not going to play them because people feel that's what we should do. If Bamford is still my top centre forward, he starts and Gelhard is on the bench. And that's the same right the way through the team. So I don't know whether it may be slightly different, perhaps last day of the season against West Brom, if they're all already relegated, which they, they surely will be. But it feels to me like he's going to carry on going full strength right to the end. With reference to Bielsa. Keen to get your take on this then before we uh, we send you off for the uh, for the surgeon's knife because everything's feeling pretty good at the minute. So let's leave your presence on this podcast with some touchy feely nice stuff. Best wins under Bielsa because things have been good. Like obviously the Man City win the other week, point against Liverpool, point against Man United. It really feels like we're starting to arrive now, but it's been good all round, hasn't it? So where do you rank like the Man City win against other wins? Well, we were discussing doing this feature, weren't we, on on the back of the. Man City game because it felt it was a very different game to some of the best games under Bielsa. Tactically, it had to be com- a complete revision of what he normally does. But tactically, I also felt it was a proper masterclass and it was clever because it touched on things that they've been working on training and, and training through the week, specifically about being under pressure and how to cope when you feel like you, you're getting overloaded. And also, it, it picked out a, a ridiculously good win against you know the best side in the division with a, a, a player less. So I think in the in the grand list of, of top performances under Bielsa, that has to go, if not at the top, then, then very close to the top. But I tried to pick out three over his three seasons that, that really stood out to me. And it was incredibly difficult because there have been so many good games under him. And there's a real argument to be had over this. I, I can see why people might think um, that game at Aston Villa um, in, in 2018, round about Christmas, was one of them. But if you're going to be hypercritical about that, Leeds struggled initially and were 2-0 down and, and it wasn't, you couldn't call it a complete display. It was a fantastic win, um, but it, it did take a, a bit of a, a recovery. 
the first one that jumped out to me, and, and I suspect most people will agree with this, was the 4 0 win over West Brom in March 2019, which was obviously uh, Hernandez banging the ball in after, what was it, 12 seconds, 16 seconds? I, I forget exactly now, but top corner job from the edge of the box that, that set the tone for the, the entire evening. There were two things that were really impressive about that. The first was that West Brom were obviously in, in really, really close contention um, for promotion. And it, it was a it was a massive game in that sense. And they were absolutely blown apart that night. You know, the game was gone from them by half time. And I think it felt as if the game was gone from the moment Hernandez scored that goal. But what will often be forgotten is that if you roll back five days earlier, Leeds were away at, at QPR for that game in hand down at Loftus Road. And were very poor on the night, really flat, never got into it, didn't make anything of the game, lost 1-0, had the chance to go back to the top of the, the championship and, and didn't. And there was that really famous photo afterwards of Bielsa crouched down in the tunnel, staring at the floor, looking really dejected and really despondent and in a pose that I think he wished he, he hadn't let people see him in. He, he didn't realise that there would be a cameraman standing there and that they'd be able to see him. But it didn't it didn't strike you as a manager who who was full of confidence or, you know, was, was kind of upbeat after that. It did seem like somebody had taken the result very badly. And I, I remember the the huddle on the pitch, the, the press huddle afterwards, and he was asked, you know, really the first time this question had been put to him in England, is this the burnout kicking in? You know, are, are your team burning out? And he really bit on that. And and he said, you know, if, if, if you're telling me that you think we have no energy or our energy is dropping, then you don't know what you're watching. You know, you, you don't know what you're looking at. We, we haven't played well tonight, but it's not because the players are tired and it's not because they're burning out. It's because we haven't played well. You know, it just hasn't been been a good game. And that was a, that was a pretty critical moment. And I know that the, the season didn't end in promotion, but the win against West Brom kind of drew the poison straight away and got the, the QPR result out of the system very, very quickly. And it was just pretty much a flawless game from start to finish. It was a perfect game, wasn't it? Um, as our mate Moscow White has pointed out, if you look at the timings of the goals, we got one right at the very start, one right at the very end, and then around 30 minutes in and 60 minutes in, it was relentless and we were fantastic that night. And it was exactly the tonic that we needed from that QPR match. I think I'm right in saying as well that Alioski finished that off very late on, at, at which point you could tell that West Brom just had nothing left and were absolutely sick of the whole night and desperate to get back in, in the changing room, back on the bus and, and go home. And it was it was that, I, I just thought it was a great riposte to the, the, the burnout accusations. It was the, the right result at the right time. And I know it didn't lead anything, it didn't lead anywhere in, in that season, but it was symptomatic of how good a team they were under Bielsa. Into the promotion season then, and this is an interesting one you've picked out because there are many that you could pick out. I mean, um, Michael, you've got a few there. What have you jotted down? Well, I, I, I would go to the first game against Stoke just for the, it probably wasn't on reflection the best performance, but it was certainly, I guess, the most surprising because there was, pre-season hadn't been brilliant. There was a lot of, I guess there was a lot of expectation that Bielsa might actually be gone within a few months of arriving. And we turned up at Ellen Road against the promotion favourites and we, just absolutely blew him away with the same players we'd had before. And it was a complete revelation for people. I think everyone was just just in shock about it, essentially. And then and then fast forward to the promotion season where we were just beating Stoke 5-0 at home and and also the Charlton game that was was at the end of that season as well, where it just felt like if we'd have carried on playing, we could have could have probably got into double figures with another half an hour of those games. 
Yeah, in my um, my honourable mentions, I, I had that Stoke game down there just because it was so enlightening, and, and everybody came came away from the game just thinking, "Blame it, you know, you can't can't believe what you've seen." And, and I I felt as well that the same applied to his second game away at Derby, the first meeting with Lampard, where they they Derby tried to go toe to toe with them and and got absolutely ripped to shreds, you know. And and again, it was another one of those. I remember looking at Lampard with his hands in his pockets at four one down. And thinking this is quite, that was his first home game, and thinking this is quite a welcome to management. This and you know the the realization straight away that you you had something really really special with Bielsa. And and again, Leicester away this season was top performance. I always I always think as well of the the two 0 win against Derby on the Spygate evening. That was absolutely overwhelming and and dominant. And and likewise the the win against Huddersfield with the the ailing volley. It just felt as if it was kind of all signs pointing to promotion. But the second of the three top performances that I picked out, the second one was the the one all draw at Brentford away down in London February 2020. And I think it was significant because of the it was like that that fork in the road at a point where Leeds were pretty badly out of form. Were they going to tail off and and drop out of the the top two? Were they going to get it together and and you know push on as as they ultimately did? But actually, I think irrespective of the result, it was a very, very good display down there. And it was that famous game where Thomas Frank had said beforehand, you know, Leeds do not want to be coming here on a Tuesday night. This after that 2-0 defeat at Forest, this is almost their this is almost their worst nightmare having to come and come and play here. And I don't think there can have been many occasions where Brentford were outplayed on the deck in the way that they were, particularly Griffin Park. Griffin Park has never been a great venue for Leeds. The results have always been poor down there. And it is one of the tight... I know they've moved from there now, but it always was one of the tightest grounds you could find, certainly at that level of the game. But they, could, they couldn't they could get on the ball. They couldn't get any possession. They were basically relying from the point at which Liam Cooper equalised. They were relying on long balls forward to utilise the pace of players like Watkins and others um, in the hope that they would get in behind and would be, be able to make something from it. And it was impressive on a number of levels. It was impressive because there was that awful mistake from Casilla that gifted Brentford the first goal. And, and after the defeat at Forest at the, the week, the previous weekend, you just felt as if that might suck the life out of Leeds again. But also you had things like Liam Cooper, who his newborn son had been very ill in hospital over the previous weekend. So nothing was really made of this at the time, but there was doubt about whether he would play. And you know, it was a lot of, under a lot of stress. He scored the goal. He scored the equaliser. I think Leeds came off the pitch that night knowing that they played well, feeling that they were a better side than, than Brentford and feeling like they'd had a, a massive shot in the arm. And I don't think it's any coincidence that that game led to the, the massive streak of wins that followed. I think the uh, if you're going back to the important promotion games as well, the, the 3-0 against Fulham was important as well because mm. we'd come back from the lockdown expecting to, as Adam Forshaw was predicting, like, run away with the league and we'd had the defeat at Cardiff and then while we had taken the lead in the first half against Fulham, they were on top and it did feel it did all feel in the balance then. And then to completely run away from them in the second half, I think that settled a lot of nerves. I think the slight difference there, it would have made a difference had um, had Fulham won, without any question. But they were seven points back at the time. So there was a little bit of a cushion and there was that's, a little that's bit That's no leeway. cushion at all if you're a Leeds fan. For... <laughs> no, no, certainly not if you're Michael Normanton. No, that's, um, that's impending relegation. But there was just a, a little bit of a gap um, and a little bit of breathing space. And it wasn't as if anybody wanted to sacrifice that. And it wasn't as if it would have been good for Leeds had they, had they done so. But it wasn't like the the point in February against Brentford when the division had closed up to such a, a massive extent 
that Leeds had everybody all over them. You know, the, the teams below them who were in the um, in the playoff positions were right there suddenly. I think they were a, a point ahead of Fulham. I think they were a couple ahead of Brentford and, and Forest. It, it, it got to the stage where a couple of bad games would have swung that quite drastically and, and could have had Leeds down in, in fourth or, or fifth position. Um, but you'll, you'll remember that before the Brentford game, Bielsa did that analysis session where he, he sort of abandoned his usual tack and and try to remind the players how good they were, how good they could be. Actually, he felt they'd played well at Forest despite everything. And it was the right speech at, at the right time. And I think that the Tuesday night game at Brentford just reinforced the fact that actually they were the best side in the league. Tell you what, it's making me feel stressed just talking about this. <laughs> I, was th- I was thinking of the Brentford game. I was just thinking, I remember prior to that, I'd, just, I'd embraced the darkness already. It wasn't a case of I was worried about it. I was just, I was resigned you'd, to... You'd accepted it, hadn't I'd you? accepted another year in the championship. I was yeah. thinking, oh, well, that's that done. Even though I know we got a happy ending, I'm sat here getting anxious about the promotion season just in case somehow I don't know how to take it away from us. I know. We, we were... we A few of us were... Journos were staying in a hotel just down the road from Brentford, the Premier League, I think it was, and there were a load of Leeds fans in there. And we were just chatting to a few of them before we went out to, to go to the game. And all of them were saying, we'll get nothing tonight. You know, we're going to get stuffed here. There was just that sort of feeling that the, the balloon had burst and that Leeds were, were in big trouble. And I think that's probably why afterwards, when you, you properly considered the performance and the extent to which they'd, they'd overrun Brentford, people were just reassured. I think it was that reassurance of knowing that Leeds did still have it in them. And a um, wonderful press conference afterwards where... Thomas Frank spent about 20 minutes trying to get the car into reverse gear and pretend that the, the quotes that had been on his own f- official website hadn't actually been said and, and want from him and, and whatever else. Um, and I think Leeds had gone through a period of about six, seven, eight weeks where you know, they were getting a kick in on and off. They were losing games. There were a lot of questions being asked. It was all getting a bit ropey. And I think that evening to, find his, to, to watch Frank squirming was, um, was quite pleasing. It definitely was planting a flag, I think, a promotion flag, that one. I, I really enjoyed it in retrospect. And like you say, it was the springboard that, that led to the promotion. Even if they were perhaps better, like the whole game, for example, where we trounced them 4-0. Probably a better game for Leeds in terms of dominance, but in terms of what it signified at the time, I think you're right there. So what's your, uh, what's your one from this season then? It's Everton away. And we've discussed before about what the best performance has been this season. And do you know, I... I I still don't think I can properly answer that. I, I know that Bielsa thinks that Villa away was was as good as any. I find it hard to think that anything goes beyond the Manchester City performance just the way that game had to be won. But Everton were, were in pretty good shape when Leeds went over there. They, they again, made some, some good signings, really dangerous front three who were in, in a decent decent amount of form. And it was things like the performance from Phillips, you know, we talked earlier about the, the pass completion rate in his own half and in, in Everton's half. It was the, the aggression of it. And the fact that Leeds comfortably deserved to win. I, I I loved watching towards the end. I think it was the 95th minute. And we've sort of been speaking about how the tactics have evolved and how they've changed. I always remember in the 95th minute, one nil up, pervade and nutmegging an Everton defender on the edge of his an edge of their box and setting up a chance for Costa, which Costa should probably have scored. And again, even there, you, you just thought it's it's that relentless thing from Leeds, isn't it? That even at one nil one you know, Everton one nil down and assuming that they'd be on the, the attack and, and you know pinning Leeds in. Instead, you've got Paveda doing that and, and Costa trying to stick in a second goal at the back post, which was like the, the scenario at Villa where 94th minute, you had something ridiculous like seven on four. 
But I felt like that display at Goodison was really, really complete. I felt like there was so little wrong with it that afterwards, even Bielsa in his analysis sessions might have struggled to have picked too much out of it. I think that's been the best of the season on reflection. But I tell you what, the, the amount of competition there is for that tells you how good a year it's been. It's been great. There's been so much joy with it. And Pervader is a perfect example of that. Another one, that, who a person I think embodies all this, is Luke Ailey. And the fact that he seems to be smiling whenever the cameras cut to him, he's just enjoying this. He's enjoying every minute. And I've had to unlearn that stress that was talking about before, you know, the anxiety surrounding Leeds. It's been so nice this season just to be able to now get safe and just enjoy our return and think, do you know what? We're in the Premier League here on merit. What Luke Ayling needs just to finish it off is an England cap. He's such a showman is Luke Ayling. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. We're picking out photos at the moment for the, the book that I've got coming out later in the year. And every pick of him is just flying volley against Huddersfield or, or something spectacular. He, he just has this knack of looking great um, in photos. But you're right about the enjoyment. I mean, I, I thought it was plainly apparent when Liverpool came to Ellen Road, even aside from the ESL stuff, which made it difficult for them and made it very difficult and awkward for, for Klopp on the night, you just could sense this vacuum of enjoyment with them. You know, you could sense this sort of vacuum of exuberance about the Premier League, about the season, about everything else. I do feel like Leeds have been able to enjoy this year in the way that a lot of teams haven't. And, you know, the, the little concern in my head is whether or not it will be harder next season when things reset a little more and when the season finds its structure and perhaps clubs like Liverpool are able to to clear their head. But I just feel as if Leeds have gone at this with, with the right attitude and, and in a year which has not been ideal and there haven't been crowds and there have been issues all over the place, they have found a way to make it fun and, and to find the fun in it. Um, and I, I don't think that there can be a club in the, the division where the players, the management are more popular with their supporters than, than is the case at Leeds at the moment. It just seems to me that everybody is happy with everything. Just about that book that's coming out later this year, given that by the time this is going to air, you'll have had a man drilling into your head. Is it finished yet? It's basically finished. It's just about <laughs> finished. It will, it will It will. be, with one trick or another, it will be out on August the 26th um, as planned. <laughs> but needless to say, it was absolutely perfect timing when in December they said to me, yeah, so you'll need to go in for surgery. And then you'll probably be looking at two or three months away from work. And I thought, absolutely marvellous. But the deadline for it was early June and I planned to have it finished a little bit in advance anyway. So yeah, pretty much there. A short final chapter. Basically, yeah, just gloss over and just finish it with the lane and they all lived happily ever after. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Will you be watching this one then, Phil, or will it be uh, Morphine City for you, Brighton away at the weekend? <laughs> I honestly have no idea. It's it's one of the many things that I can't 
get any concept of is whether I'm going to be able to look at screens initially or read books or anything else, whether like, whether I'm going to be so wiped out that I wouldn't be able to hold the book even, even if I wanted to. Quite a lot of people who've had brain tumours removed before have said to me that you'd be amazed at the speed at which you're sitting up and eating and, and everything else. So if I can watch it, then I absolutely will watch it. But something tells me that two days on or 36 hours on from surgery, I might have to give this one a swerve. I mean, I guess we don't even need to do a preview then, do we? It doesn't really matter what happens. But what do you think will happen? Well, they're a weird team, Brighton, aren't they? I mean, I, I think they are going to stay up. And I think that the bottom three look pretty much boxed in now. There, there is still a chance for Fulham to get out of it, but it's it's going to take something spectacular from them. And they've gone from that period where the wins were starting to tick or the results were starting to tick over a little bit to the point where they just can't buy a win again and, and minus wins, they are not going to get, get out of the, the bottom three. I think Brighton will just about deserve to stay up given what's below them, but they have not had a good season. Um, and I go back to something I've, I've said before, which is that I hear a lot of praise and credit given to, to Graham Potter and I do like a lot of what his team does, but it doesn't really seem to be working at the moment. And I don't know how sustainable that is for them. Either they're going to click and they're going to become this you know, the flowing team that, that do actually win games more regularly, or they're going to be stuck in, in this kind of rut for, for a long time. And it's quite it's quite funny, really, that first half of the season, I, I was aware of how much people were talking still about Ben White and the fact that Leeds hadn't managed to get him and, and what a difference he might have made to the team. Who? I don't, I don't, well, this is it. I don't sense the, the same interest in him now. And I, I get the feeling that, you know, looking at the, batch of central defenders that Bielsa has it's not that people wouldn't take White because we've not forgotten how good he was in that promotion season but it, it just doesn't feel worthy of an obsession anymore I don't know how we even bothered getting him last season we had Pascal Strauch in the reserves should have just played him instead he was ours no he, he was I mean he was we do forget just how good he was for us last year Ben White but um, yeah we've moved on yeah life moves on people change it? don't yeah, they absolutely you grow apart yeah you chose um, the, the club down the road that's fine we don't want to hear from you anymore uh, we'll delete you on Facebook. What do Brighton do? What do Brighton do? Uh, you said they can't keep doing what they do. What What do they do? I'm not quite sure. They are patient. Um, they try to play, as people would say, in the way that you should. I think that the problem comes if playing in the way that you should doesn't get your results. As Bielsa was saying after the game at Old Trafford, you, you cannot be all about style over substance because at some point you do have to to have some substance. Otherwise, you, you get into get into trouble. The biggest thing that they don't do is score goals. And I'm not going to be clever about that because they weren't really scoring goals back in January, but they came and they beat Leeds at, at Elland Road. It was a pudding of a pitch, but it was also a pudding of a performance from Leeds and, and Brighton deserved it on the day. But they, they're not dangerous enough going forward. They don't take enough of the chances. That there is, you know, People have spoken all the way through the season about the fact that their XG4 is much better than the number of goals they do score and their XG against is worse than the number of goals they, they should concede. So clearly they are kind of doing something right in the way that they're playing and, and what they're, they're creating. But they're not clinical enough and they have seven wins from 33 games, which is nowhere near enough. And, and in other seasons, we'd have left them in more trouble than they're in at the moment. Only January that first game, although it feels like it was a lot longer ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. Everything feels like a lifetime ago, I, I think. I, obviously, as part of the book, I've been writing about the demise from 2001 onwards just for a, a specific chapter. And even getting into the Christensen and Heckingbottom days, I, I don't know what it is about Bielsa. Well, well, I do know what it is. I mean, it's, it's the quality of his football and it's the, the magic of the 
of what's been around him and the way people have, have plugged into it and, and loved it. But it feels as if three years are as much of an era, these three years with him are as much of an era as the 16 years of total abject misery in the EFL or the you know the, the 13 years of, of misery before he came in. But yeah, I, I agree with you that a lot's happened since January and that was part of, you know, it's a, a, just a, a little wobble at that point where they'd lost to Crawley, obviously they'd lost to Tottenham, they got beaten by Brighton and, you know, again, one of the few moments this season where it could have set in and it could have become, um, it could have become an issue. But it's felt like easy work since then. And I know there have been defeats and there's been poor results like West Ham and, and Arsenal, but it's six games without a loss now. And, and it feels like it's been six games without a loss. It feels like a long time since any of us were talking about Leeds being a, a soft touch defensively or a soft touch from set pieces. And they have the form going into this. Brighton have very little form, it, it has to be said. But they, they are a, they are a useful team, Brighton. They, they do have the, the capacity to play well. It just doesn't show itself often enough. I'm just looking at the lineup for that Brighton game. We had Kiko Casilla in goal, which you wonder whether that has a knock-on effect to the central defence. The central defence that night was Ailing and Cooper at centre-half, and we had Alioski at left-back and Dallas at right-back. So you wonder, with Melier in goal, you've got Luke Ailing back in his natural position, two different centre-backs, and, uh, and Alioski still there on the left, whether that's that slightly changes the uh, the form and shape of this game. Stronger team, no doubt. The lineup will will be better. This weekend, but I don't think the real issue against Brighton was what was happening at the back. I don't think in any way Casilla was to blame for it. Um, defensively, they were not good for the goal, but where Leeds let themselves down was in finding good position um, and possession further up the pitch. You know, they they want a danger in an attacking sense. Um, Rodrigo didn't really get into the game at all. He went off after after an hour. It it just wasn't good. It was an it was an off day. It was a flat day. The sort of day you don't get too often with Bielsa. And I'm not sure that I would be anticipating a, an epic down on the south coast either. But you'd like to think that they'll play better. And crucially, Strauch was in midfield at this point, covering Calvin Phillips. So you can see that that sort of diamond from the keeper to the holding midfielder and the centre-halves, it wasn't full strength. And you like to think we're made of uh, of sterner stuff now. I mean, what what do you think for this one then? Leeds win? I'm going for a Leeds win. We predicted Leeds win on the, on the square ball podcast, didn't we, Michael? I think so. And looking at, back at that team, I think when, when Ailing's in the centre as well, we lose quite a bit going forward when he's not there. His energy down the right-hand side, I think, stretches teams as well. So... Him in there, Dallas seems fairly settled in central midfield now, which I think will make a difference as well. So I don't know if we is have we got any news yet on whether or not Rafinha's going to return for this one? It's been a case of monitoring slowly. Um, we haven't had uh, Bielsa's press conference this week. He'll have a chance, I think, but whether or not he'll he'll make it is, is difficult to say. I, I think a lot of us hope that because it, it's obviously worse than a dead leg. You know, it's it's not just your your standard bang on on the thigh. But I think a lot of us kind of hope that that he might have a look in for for Man United. It was pretty apparent once Bielsa said he hadn't been training up until the Friday that that, that wouldn't happen. Um, and and again, he won't risk him because they're, they're so close to the end of the season. But he will make a difference if he's in the team. And and as you were saying there, just a team with more balance. I think if if this season has proven one thing beyond doubt, it's that Phillips has to play in that centre central defensive role, defensive midfield role. And I don't think we could positively say that anybody has stepped forward who looks like a, a suitable replacement for him yet. I still think that is is a problem. And likewise, you've got Ailing on the right, you know, you you're kind of different um and, and more dangerous in terms of the balance on on that side. And and Rafinha obviously has has a bag of tricks. So yeah, I think um I think even with or without 
Rafinha, they, they they should win this game. It, it is it is winnable, but I do think it will be tight. I do think it will be close. And again, if you pick back through Brighton's results, they haven't taken many hammerings this season at all. It, it's all been, you know, it's all been fairly nip and tuck. But they are just not good at edging those games. Normally, we ask you to close out the show by giving us a one to watch, like a thing, an issue, player battle, whatever it might be, that's going to be a key feature of the uh, the upcoming game. Let's not do that. Uh, because we can't hold you to account on it next week because Tony Dorigo is going to be here instead of you. So let's get some some overall predictions then, really tap into your skill set of getting stuff wrong before we send you off to uh, to hospital. Champions League spots then in the Premier League, who are you going for? Man City, Man United and... Man City, Man United, Leicester, Chelsea. I think the top four will be as it is. In terms of relegation, who do you think is going to go down? Because you know Brighton are not completely out of the hunt yet. They're not, but the gap is seven points. They're only five games to go. Fulham have only got 27 points from 33 games and have only won five times. So at, at the bottom three are going, aren't they? If you say so, right. What about the Champions League? So we've got um, Man City and PSG. I mean, we're recording this um, slap bang in the middle of the semi-finals, but we've got Man City or PSG or Chelsea or Real Madrid, which are the four. Um, so three of the four, obviously, European Super League clubs. PSG... Uh, holding up the integrity of the game uh, by not joining the um, the European Super League. What a standard to look up to, etc., etc. Et yes, aren't they just? Aren't they just? PSG will win the Champions League. I'm going to say that confidently. Who's winning the playoffs then? Brentford, uh, Bournemouth, Swansea, Barnsley. We'd all like Barnsley up, but who's actually going to win them? Oh, blame me! I'm going to go for Brentford this time. They're going to do it this time. The, the Tony will score some goals. He'll get them over the line. Be funny if they didn't, though. Uh, where do Leeds finish, and what's the points total going to be? Then, what do you reckon? I think Leeds will finish ninth. I think the points total will be something like fifty-four, fifty-five. What about the transfer market? Then, how many signings? How much are we going to spend? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say minimum of three signings. Expenditure-wise, very hard to say, but I think it will be considerably less than last summer. In fact, I know it will be considerably less. Will we break our record signing in this transfer window? Anyone in particular? I don't think so. Oh, that kind of uh, blows this next question out of the water. On what date do we sign Rodrigo de Paul? <laughs> Somebody on, on one of our Q&As recently, someone said to me, given that uh, you said that de Paul isn't happening and he'll be going elsewhere and that Leeds haven't really bothered with him um, and are, are looking at other options, to which address should I send the welcoming flowers when he lands? <laughs> which I thought was, I thought was well played. Um, look, I tell you what, if he does sign, I'll pull my own teeth out. How's that for a deal? <laughs> it sounds like a deal. Well, I think we're just about done for this one. So you go off with our best wishes. Please do come back in one piece and, and come back very soon and, and good luck with your recovery. And we'll obviously we'll keep in touch. Did you know you are, you yeah. are trending on Twitter at the moment, Phil? Such is your is impact. You is are, that a there good is, or a bad thing? There's Ed Balls Day, Electoral Commission and Phil are the top three trends on Twitter at the moment. So you've you've finally done it. But no, um, do, <laughs> do, do come back soon. I know we don't we don't tend to do being nice and sincerity on these on this or any podcast, but um we will miss you. No, thanks, dudes. I will be back. Tony Dorigo is guesting next week then as we do the Phil Hayless Phil Hay Show. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us during Phil's absence, we've got the Twitter account at the Phil Hay Show. And we'll bring you updates uh, with Phil as well. We have, as I said at the top of the show, we've recorded some bits just to keep Phil's voice on the podcast so we don't completely forget you. It'll be lovely to have you back. Um, estimated return, will you be back for the new season? Who's going to be back first, you or Adam Forshaw? Good question. Uh, I would hope to be back by the end of July, early August, uh, something like that. And if, if the surgery doesn't go well, you can just think of this podcast as a seance. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
On which cheery note, thank you, Phil. Uh, you can subscribe to The Athletic for three ninety nine a month uh, for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of that discount. We will uh, we'll catch you next week. All the best, Phil. Speak soon. See you later. The Phil Hay Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.